Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we share resources by and for adoptive and foster moms. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it and we're here for you. Good morning, Melissa. How are you? I am doing all right. How are you, Lisa? I'm doing pretty well. Good, good. Well, I wanted to start this week off with a review that someone left on iTunes. We read every single one and they they make us ridiculously happy. Um, They're kind of, they're super motivating, but I really loved this one because she talks about how it feels like we're all just friends and we're just sitting around having a little chat. And I remember feeling like that when I first started listening to podcasts that I felt like I was sitting right there. It was actually Jamie Ivey's podcast. And I just remember thinking, this is so fun. I feel like I'm an eavesdropper in a really fun conversation and you get to kind of feel like you know these people. So um, I hope that you guys feel like that. And we do, we love hearing back from you. There's a couple different ways to do that. You can hang out with us on Facebook. We have a really fun group. It's separate than our page, so look for the Adoption Connection group. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, We're also on Instagram as the Adoption Connection. So again, we love like hearing your comments. We love reviews on iTunes because they really help other people find us. And you know, people are saying things like, "Your topics are on point and so helpful." I feel like you are there walking through the trenches with me and encouraging me with every scary step we take keep up the good work. So anyway, we love to know that what we're doing is helpful for you all. You can certainly, um, you know, be a part of the conversation through social media. Uh, You don't have to be a silent observer. And so we love hearing from you guys. We really do. And if you haven't subscribed to our weekly newsletter, that's a fun way to keep in touch too. So we would just invite you to do any of those things But thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us. It really does. Yeah. And if you want to get on that email list, all you have to do is go to our website at theadoptionconnection.com. There's a free video training. You just sign up to get that. You'll get some really helpful information. And then we'll send you, we call it the quick connection. It's a really quick email every Tuesday morning. People respond back to those too. And we love hearing from you. So that's just fun. Well, Speaking of friends, today we have our friend Pam Parrish on the podcast. Pam is the founder of Connections Homes, an Atlanta-based organization impacting the lives of young adults who are aging out of foster care or who are homeless or without family. She and her husband, Steve, are the parents of seven young adult daughters. One of their daughters came to them through the gift of birth and six through the gift of foster care and adoption. They are also Pops and Nana to three adorable grandchildren. Pam is also the author of four books. Her most recent book is titled The Gift, Unwrapping God's Design for Foster Care and Adoption. So we're just thrilled to welcome her to the podcast today. Hi, Pam. Welcome to the Adoption Connection podcast. Hi. I'm glad to be back, Lisa. So in this episode, we're going to talk primarily about one of your passions, which is older kids. That's what I'd like to focus on today because I think so many of us don't really know what happens to older foster youth when they age out, what happens to kids when adoptions are disrupted when they're older. What need did you see that led you to develop Connections Homes? Past five daughters came to us after 18. 
So they came to us from homelessness or adoption disruption or aging out of foster care. So all of these different ways, they kind of showed up on our doorstep. And uh, when we started looking at the landscape, when I stepped back and really started looking at the landscape of this issue, I mean, when, a, when something knocks on your door that many times, you have to go, okay, one, God's doing something. And two, there's a big problem. You know, I started really looking at the statistics and over 22,000 kids age out of foster care every single year. So that's a cumulative number. Just think about that. In Georgia, which is where we live, 700 kids age out of the system every year. At any given moment in Atlanta, there's 3,500 18 to 24-year-olds homeless in, in the Atlanta area. So you're looking at that population and you're thinking, what is happening to these kids? So then you dig into the statistics. 97% of kids who age out of foster care without a significant stable person in their life will end up in poverty or worse. 65% of girls end up pregnant in the first year, most of them repeating the child welfare cycle again because they end up in crisis, their kids end up back in the system. 70% of boys will end up in jail. Um, most of the time their first jail experience is a survival crime. When you're hungry, you're gonna do whatever it takes to eat. And then there's just, there's just all kinds of statistics after that. I mean, less than 3% ever go on to earn enough money to make a living wage. They don't complete any kind of education or skilled trade. I, I realized after looking at all the statistics of what happens to these kids that I have four of them in my home, kids that fit this demographic and us being in their life was making all of the difference. You know, the Lord just really began to work on our hearts about starting this organization. My pastor had challenged me. I was on staff at a church and he said, I think God's doing something bigger in your story. And I want you and Steve to pray about it. And if you feel like God's leading you in a certain direction, we will support you as a church. So we launched Connections Homes and our mission is to prevent poverty and homelessness for youth aging out of foster care. Um, or homeless without family by connecting them to mentoring families who step into their lives um, and just make a difference, make a lifelong difference. So we started in 2014. We're four years old. We've connected, matched and maintained 75 young people in the Atlanta area. And, you know, just watching these kids and their mentoring families has, it's incredible what happens to them that you know, they get connected to a mentoring family and all of a sudden they feel like they belong and they feel like they matter and somebody sees them and, you know, they have somebody who remembers their birthday, a place to go at Thanksgiving, all of those things, a, a person to call is, should I date this boy or should I date this girl? What do I do for this job interview? Like all of these things. And it was one of those things where when we started Connections Homes, we were the first organization in the United States to do it. We're still, there's, there's a couple of others that are starting up using a similar model. Um, but we're still primarily the only organization doing this. So just, and just, just looking at our kids and the kids that we've connected and their success. Now 45% of our kids are maintaining their own housing arrangement, meaning that they're living in an apartment, they're paying their own bills. 53% are pursuing college or a skilled trade of some sort. Um, less than 5% of our girls that we've connected have gotten pregnant since being connected. 
And my favorite outcome of Connections Homes is that of all of our parenting youth, um, and we've had a lot of them, including me, a couple of boys that are parents, of all of our parenting youth, 100% of them have maintained care and custody of their children. That's Instead amazing. Them, it's incredible. But when you've got somebody that you can call and say, hey, they called me in for a shift. Can I bring Mackenzie over and will you babysit? It makes all the difference because they're able to maintain their employment. They're able to maintain their housing because they've got a support system around them. And I think people don't think about just how important when we were 18, 19, and 20 years old, our family was. We forget. I mean, there's no way that I would be where I am today without my grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents, when I was 19 to 24 years old, trying to figure out this thing called life. And um, to be out on your own and have no one but your peers around you is astounding to me. Yeah. You know, um, we have a foster daughter who's going to be 18 at the end of this year. And I don't know if that'll be before or after this airs, possibly before. But, you know, I've parented now. Let me see. How many of my kids are over 18? Quite a few. Maybe six, seven. Wow. Yeah. Six, maybe. And then our foster daughter. And what I know is that my young adults need me a lot. You know, they just because they're 18 and they maybe have, they're going to college or whatever, a lot of them still need us, you know, and with our foster daughter, her situation's a little bit different where she really has a very involved family that loves her very much. And so adoption was not really a a good option in her case, but I anticipate we will be part of her lives ongoing. You know, I don't, she will have been with us two and a half years when she turns 18 and three years by the time she graduates from high school. So these kids really do need us. I think the statistics you mentioned just um, were kind of shocking to me. Like, did you say 70% of young men who age out of foster care end up in prison? Mm-hmm. Well, jail or prison jail. at some point in some point within the first couple of years, most of the time for a survival crime, petty theft, drug sales, gang related activity, whatever. I mean, cause, and, and if you, if you trace all of that back to I'm hungry and I need to feed myself, I'm lonely and I need community, which will lead you into a gang. You know, it's absolutely understandable why, why that would be the statistics because what else, what else are you going to do? Most of these kids, by the time they age out, even if they have their important documents like birth certificate, driver's license, most of them don't have a driver's license. They're likely to lose it within the first year because how many of our kids keep track of those things? I keep a duplicate of everything. Right. So, right. Because they're going to lose it. So then they go to get a job and the job asks for a social security card or a birth certificate and they don't have it. So then they, oh, they give up because they don't understand. You go to vital records, you request this stuff. It's the simplest things that trip these kids up. Like we've had mentoring families say, you know, we've just asked them to apply for a job online and I can't get them to do it. And then my instruction to them is sit down with them and walk through the process. And I'm telling you, Lisa, nine times out of 10, the barrier was one question that they didn't know the answer to. And because they got to it, they got stuck mentally. 
and, and they're not used to somebody coming alongside them and helping. So they gave up and it was much easier to play the Xbox because they knew how to do that. I think sometimes when they have had a lot of challenges and sometimes a lot of failures in their lives, those kinds of things, it's like they, they don't want to not know how to do it. So it's easier to ignore it, yeah. you know? Oh, I mean, isn't it easier for us to ignore things? <laughs> all kinds of things, all kinds of things. Well, and another, another challenge, um, like with my foster daughter, was trying to open a bank account. If you don't have an adult over 18 who can open that with you, you can't have a bank account. So you know what happens? Your foster parents encourage you to get a job, and somehow you don't open your bank account, so you just spend what you make, you know? Right. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've had to learn a few things along the way. Yeah, it's so hard. And I don't think people really consider the barriers that these kids have to overcome to actually do something with their life. It's easy to sit back in kind of armchair quarterback, uh, a 19 year old and be like, just get up and do something with your life. Um, But until you dig in and you realize what this young man or this young woman is dealing with, and you get in there and you realize it's just something as simple as we had one young man who couldn't get his driver's license because he didn't have a, uh, a birth certificate. Well, he was born in another state and was brought here and abandoned. And in order for him to get the birth certificate from another state, he had to have a photo ID. Well, he couldn't get a photo ID in Georgia without a birth certificate from another state. Lisa, it took Connections Homes and our, and our legal help six months to get this kid a photo ID. And finally, He had enrolled in a school and we went to the school and we said, Hey, if we take a picture of him, can we paste it into a transcript? And they let us do that. They let us paste his photo on a school transcript. And we were able to send that to Arkansas and get a certified birth certificate for this kid. But imagine, and he had an entire organization and mentoring family advocating for him. Imagine having no one. And ended up in that, in that situation. You just can't, you just, you, you, you're literally stuck. You cannot get anywhere. And so many of these kids end up that, in that place. And Harvard did a study in 2015. And they took a look at at-risk children and young adults. And they took a look at that whole population. And they said, okay, this, this portion succeeded and this portion didn't. What was the difference? You know what they found? One what? thing. One thing connection. The ones that succeeded had at least one person in their life who believed in them, advocated for them, and was there for them. That's really powerful. That is so powerful. So I'm wondering, what kind of people do you look for to be, do you call them mentor families? Is that what you call them? We call them mentoring families. Mentoring families. So like, what qualifications do people have to have to be a mentoring family? they have to be willing to be a part of a young person's story. So we have an orientation that talks about what it looks like to be a mentoring family. Most of our kids don't live in the home. We're not moving kids into the home. And um, then we have a full one day training where we talk about resilience, emerging adulthood. We deal a little bit about trauma informed care, um, how to build relationship and connection, all the hard issues you might deal with, with a young adult then um, our families go through an application process where we really just get to know them. And um, we do a criminal, a a state federal criminal background check and child protective services screening. 
So once they've done all of that, they're approved. Then we match them with a young person who is in proximity to them. We're in the Atlanta area. So where you live makes a difference. It could be 10 miles, but depending on where the 10 miles is in Atlanta, it could be the difference between uh, 20 minutes to get to the kid to an hour and a half. So we have to look really hard at, at where the mentoring family and the young person live. But really that's it. Most of our mentoring families are empty nesters. Um, they're people that are sitting in church and they're hearing a foster care message and they're thinking, and I don't want to go back to school. I'm done. My, I know how I felt when my last one graduated. I felt like I was graduating high school. And, um, but then they hear about Connections Homes and they think, that is something I could do. Like, I've got, I've got kids in college. I can totally be there for a kid who doesn't have anyone. So that's really what they look like. Our process is unique, though, because we have our mentoring families um, do all of this paperwork and we create a profile on them that the kid chooses from. So. Okay. I, tell me about that. That just <laughs> fascinates me because I mean, I remember adopting one of our older girls from Ethiopia and realizing we were not at all what she really wanted. And I remember thinking, wow, if these kids, I mean, I know these kids were younger, but if they could be involved in the decision about the family, they might, be happier. So tell me about that. Yeah. So one of um, our core value from day one of Connections Homes has been that our youth have a voice and a choice um, because those are the two things that most often get taken from them. And um, so we have our families do all of the paperwork that we ask our young adults to do. And um, actually they do a whole lot more than our young adults. And we create what's called a discovery profile on both the mentoring family and on the young person. And when we have a family for a young person, we send a discovery profile over and we say, Hey, here's a family we think is a good match. Let us know if you want, if that's somebody you'd want to be in relationship with 99% of the time they choose the one we send them because we're very careful in our matching process. But we've had a couple who've said, no, I don't feel like that's a good match for me. And you know what? We say, okay, we go back to the family and let them know that we'll keep looking for a match for them. And, you know, what you just said is exactly right. These kids, one, they're choosing to be a part of Connections Homes to begin with. Nobody's making them. So when they com come, when they're referred and they complete the paperwork, they're actively saying, I want someone in my life. So they're making that first choice. Then we give them voice and we say, here's a family for you. Tell me, well, first of all, we give them voice in the process. What do you want? What are you looking for in a family? What, is, what does it mean to you? What does family mean to you? And um, then we give them voice a second time and letting them choose this family. And honestly, I've had out of the 75 uh, matches that we've worked with, I've had maybe five that have been, that have required a lot of what we would call case management. And the reason is, is that we give the youth a voice and a choice. They buy in at the very beginning. It was their decision. And if they call me complaining, guess what I get to say? It was your decision. It, I didn't make it for you. You chose. So um, the empowering feeling that these kids have as a part of the process is one of the reasons that our, that our success rate is so high. It's really impressive. It's, it's so... Um 
really a beautiful program. And so let's say somebody, if, if someone wants to start a program like this in their community, in their church, I'm assuming they can reach out to you through your website. I'll put the web address for your, um, in our show notes for your organization, but do you want to tell them what it is? Yeah, it's just connectionshomes.org. And we are actively in the process of working on what we're uh, lovingly calling Connections Homes in a Box um, so that it can be handed over to someone in another state and they can take it. I know it takes me so much effort to keep up with what's going on in Georgia (laughs) that changes on a seemingly daily basis with our Department of uh, Family Services that I can't possibly understand uh, Washington or Texas or anywhere like that. So we are actively working on a franchise model, which hands over all of our standard operating procedures, matching process and everything. That's wonderful. What if that doesn't exist and a person's not ready to start it? How can they get involved in a young adult's life um, and still help them in the absence of an organization? What would you recommend? Oh my gosh, go find a homeless shelter in your area. Go find an independent living or transitional living center in your area and volunteer. Volunteer in a way that puts you in contact with these kids. And I promise you, you're going to fall in love with at least one and you become that one's person. It's as easy as that. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Pam, for sharing this, this model of this beautiful organization that you founded. I just, it excites me, especially as a mom of lots of young adults and teens, and I think it can change generations. You're not just changing that young person's life. You're changing generations, because if we can break the cycle of children going into foster care and then having children who go into foster care, I mean, that alone, if we can break that, it's, um, it's truly transformative. It is. And it's such an honor to be able to do this work and work with these amazing kids. And it's an honor to be on the Adoption Connection. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this interview with Pam. Youth aging out of the foster care system is something that's really become near and dear to our hearts. A couple of years ago, we actually, for a short second, like a year and a half, owned a coffee shop in our city. And it was a social enterprise. And the goal was to not just be the best coffee in Baltimore, but to provide internships for kids who had aged out of the foster care system because we understood kind of what a conundrum they're in. And so I love what Pam is doing. We actually, our honorary seventh child is a youth who aged out of the foster care system. And we still are able to be in touch with him today. And, you know, I know that even though it was kind of, we played a short part of his life. I think it was really impactful because he had never experienced some of the things that we take for granted as a family. Well, you know, our foster daughter just turned 18 at the end of December and she chose to move out and move into a place with um, some of her family, but she's very, very close by in town. And just on Sunday, she was here and she needed some help navigating a sticky situation at work. You know, she still needs our support. Like she needed to borrow a tool. So it's just a, a nice thing to, even though she's not living in our home right now, to still be very much part of her life. And we love her, you know, and she needs support. I mean, we were talking just a little bit ago. I now have eight children, 18 years and older, if you can believe that. That's a lot. 
you know, my young adult kids, there's a lot that they still come to us for. Everything, like Pam talked about, a birth certificate. So we have, Russ is very organized, so we have files with all the important documents for all the kids. We keep things for them that are valuable that they don't want to have as they're traveling or living in apartments or whatever. Not that they have much of value, but you know, little things here and there. They're just things that we can offer advice and support on for them that, that they still need. Even if they're 30, they still come to us with questions. I think our culture really values this whole independence at 18 idea. And, but if we really think about it, I think we do better when we value interdependence, this community thing. We need each other. And I mean, honestly, we still use my parents a lot. Like we live with them. And part of the reason why we decided to continue to live with them after we didn't kind of quote unquote need to anymore is because there was value in multiple adults, you know, being able to help each other out. They help us with childcare. We help them with technology. You know, my dad had some medical things about a year ago and he was able to be at home instead of a more institutional recovery center because there were so many adults living at home who could help him. And, you know, my sister moved back in, you know, she was almost 30 when she moved back in. And, and I think I've probably said this here before, but if I let the culture kind of speak into that, a lot of people were confused about that, you know, like, well, is she going to get a job? When is she going to get out? You know, like, but it was actually such a beautiful thing. We were all able to help raise my nephew and, she was there to help us with our kids through a really, really hard season. And she was there to help my dad this past winter. And so I don't know, I just, this idea of being on your own, one of our interns at our coffee shop was a single mom and Pam touched on this, but what do you do if your child's sick and can't go to daycare and you have an hourly job? You know, if you can't find childcare and you don't have a mom to call and say, Hey, can you watch my child? I mean, I did that a ton when my kids were little, you know, I had to go to school or work and, you know, I had family right there to help us out. You don't go to work. You don't get paid. You do it too long. You lose your job. You know, it's just, there's a lot of uphill battles when you don't have a support system and maybe it's not a biological family, you know, these mentor families that Pam is putting in contact and in relationship with these youth. You know, it could be a church family, it could be neighbors, but I think it's so important to stay connected. I really agree. You know, one of our young adult kids actually just moved home about a week or two ago, very uh, kind of suddenly just decided to make a big life change. He's thinking about going back to school and he had some work opportunities here locally and he just packed up and came home. And we're thrilled, you know, and we're happy to help him in this transition time as he makes decisions for his future. So, yeah, I I know that our culture thinks our kids should grow up and move out and be very independent. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think we're supposed to grow and mature, but interdependency, like you're talking about, Melissa, I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, and I think the other part that's really important to remember is when we feel safe, we search for more independence in our life. And this is true even for young toddlers, right? When they, when our toddlers start to separate and go explore the world from us, they go to the opposite side of the playground, you know, and then they come back to check on us. That's a sign of, of security, secure attachment and felt safety. 
And so if you're struggling with a teen or young adult who kind of just feels like they're not ready to go yet, but you're feeling like you are ready for them to go, I think that's important to remember. I also think it's important to remember what Pam shared with us that, you know, the relationships that she's talking about through Connections Home are voluntary. And, you know, sometimes the relationships we are in with our kids are not. So there's a lot of extra dynamics there. You know, she also said that most of her youth, most of the youth that Connections Homes serve do not live with their mentor family. I think that's really important too, for on a couple of reasons. So one, help us have some grace and understanding why it might feel really hard with our young adults and our teens. But then also to remember that it's okay for other people to come in and mentor our young adults and teens because there's a different attachment relationship there. But then that also means that we might be able to also pour into another young adult or teen just because you might feel like you're always at odds with your young adult or teen doesn't mean that you don't have value to somebody else's young adult or teen. And I think it does take a village to kind of work our young adults and teens, especially those who have come from really hard places that have trauma in their background, you know, for all of them to feel comfortable to move forward and find that felt safety. So you can connect with Pam and the Connections Home at their website, which is connectionshomes.org. So there's an S at the end of both of those words. They're also on Facebook as Connections Homes. We will have all of that information as well as a link to Pam's new book, The Gift, on our website at the show notes. You can find that information at theadoptionconnection.com slash 28. We've come to the part in the podcast that we call Mentor Moments, where we answer a listener's question. Today's question is, how do I handle parenting multiple children with high needs and challenging behaviors? Well, that is a really good question that I know Melissa and I have both grappled with. Our friends have dealt with it. Our listeners, our readers, this is just a common challenge for so many of us. Melissa, do you want to tackle that first? I will. I'm actually going to start by just saying, if you only have one child from a hard place in your house, or if you haven't yet had a placement in your home, you know, Dr. Purvis used to say that she thought it was wise that there was only one child from a hard place at a time in a home. And, you know, I used to think like, oh, that's, you know, we could do more. Or what about sibling groups? And I still think thinking about siblings is really important. But sometimes I also think depending on what the traumas are and how hard the kids are, that that it's a conversation to be had. I don't think it's as cut and dry as it is anymore. And and because this is such a common question, because those of us who have had or have right now multiple kids with high needs, like it is so, so hard. <laughs> so I'm just it really is. By saying like, even if you feel like you have more energy to give. This is wise, wise advice to, to focus on one because you just never know what's around another corner and sometimes it can get harder and you want to stay with that feeling like you're fresh and you have some room. You don't want to max yourself out. (laughs) So you're saying if people have not already added multiple kids with trauma into their family, 
that they might want to pause and think about this. Is that what you're saying? Definitely, definitely. Because we thought we were okay. And you know what? Even when a child is okay and then you add another one to the mix, it it stirs up a lot of stuff. Like our son, our first adoption, when we added our second, third, and fourth adoptions, really struggled. And we thought he was doing a lot better than he was. But um, anyway, so I'll preface with that. In terms of, you know, what do we do once we are in the midst of all of these things, I think it's important to remember that our kids have really, really big needs, bigger than what we can fill in a sprint. This is like an ultra marathon. And sometimes they feel like black holes. Like it doesn't matter what you do, they still need, need, need. And sometimes we can think that if we just do one more thing or one more week of this or one more month of that, then we'll see, a, you know, we'll see a change. We'll turn a corner. And that's not always the case. And in the meantime, other kids with needs, other kids, kids by birth or neurotypical kids or our marriage kind of fall by the wayside. So, you know, I spend a lot of time in coaching with families, just helping them think more intentionally about where they're putting their time and energy. We all only have 24 hours in a day. And it's okay to not spend all your energy and all your time and all your resources on the greasiest wheel, if you will. Squeakiest wheel, right? Squeakiest, yeah. <laughs> greasiest would be nice and quiet. We do have a couple of those. Well, not, uh, not right now so much. I was reflecting on this just the other day because for so long we put a lot of energy, like, well, not just energy, a lot of our resources. And when I say resources, I mean our time, our energy, our money into a very small number of children. And now that, you know, we have a little more capacity to look at the smaller number of kids in our home, you know, there's one in particular that I think missed out on some support and help that was needed. And I can't go back and change that, but we are trying now uh, to really dive in to some extra support for this child and trying to sort out just some different challenges. So it's, I think when we have lots of kids with challenges, it's easiest, right? What you're saying is we focus on the ones who are, who demand the most response from us. And then kids who also still have needs tend to get pushed aside. If I could do it again, I would do that differently. I know we, have talked in the past some about siblings and we learned a lot about um, the importance of not neglecting the needs of all the other kids in the home, but not until a lot of pain had been caused and damage done. And fortunately with our kids who had secure attachment with us, we were able to repair that. For our kids who did not, do not necessarily have secure attachment, it's harder to repair, but we're working on it. Yeah. I would also say it's easy to think that if we just do one more therapy, one more thing that because our kids that are demanding the most, we want, we kind of feel like we want to fix that. You know, it's the, it's the hardest to live in that tension. And I would just say, be really intentional about how you're spending your energy and evaluating kind of what the return on investment is in that, because we can put a lot of time and energy and driving back and forth to different appointments. And not that those things aren't helpful or good, but in different seasons, they're not as helpful or good as the amount of time they're causing us to 
maybe pull away from other people in our family who need our attention, maybe other kids from hard places, you know, just neurotypical kids, our marriage, our jobs, whatever, and just kind of weigh in the balance, you know, if that's as helpful as you want it to be. I mean, there's just so many things that we can be doing as we go that are helpful and therapeutic. Um, We also talk a lot in coaching about the things that we can do for ourselves that help us be better for relationship. And those things are super, super important because the return on investment there is super high because we can control ourselves. So I think that would be the, my other piece of advice is just, you know, weigh out how you're spending your time and, and money and resources and realize that a good thing isn't always a necessary thing in a season where you're juggling a lot of challenges. Right. A couple of things come to my mind. One is, you know, it's okay to take therapy breaks. If you are investing a huge amount of time into multiple therapies for one child, I mean, that's great. If they're showing dramatic progress, of course, that's one thing. But if it's a slow bit of progress, you know, one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one, you know, if it's like that, and your other kids are really needing more from you, I mean, I think it's okay to take a break for the summer or over the Christmas holidays or whatever you need to do. I also think that, you know, for a long time, we were concerned about making things fair and that if we did something for one child, that meant we had to do it for all of them. Or if we did something with one or two children, we had to do it with everybody. And we learned that um, for the good of our other children, sometimes we needed to do things that didn't include everybody. And, and that was okay. So I guess what I want to say is I want to give moms permission to not have to make it fair. So we had a child who could not tolerate family vacation. Like it made her miserable, like truly, truly miserable. And so what we found, and it, it may sound terrible, but what we found that was best for her is we would take her with us. She'd join us for the first couple of days. Then she would actually go to this wonderful Christian summer camp where we knew the director and, and which that doesn't so much matter, but you know, we felt super comfortable and then we'd pick her up at the end and she'd rejoin us for a couple of days and then we'd go home. And that worked really, really well for meeting her needs and meeting the needs of the other children on a smaller scale. It's okay to leave maybe your most demanding child with a friend, if that's an option or hire a sitter, if that's an option and do something with the other kids because they need you, they, and, and you need them. That's the thing. I think as moms, we need to have some reinforcement and the reward of kids who actually receive our care and our love. It's, it's very healing to my heart, I know, to be with my kids who actually think I'm a good mom. Um, you know, it helps me go on. And so it's, it's all right to do things with some of your kids and not all. I just want to give everyone permission to consider that anyhow. I love that. You even talked, Lisa, about maybe even pulling your kids out of school. That way you don't have to hire a babysitter or find respite if your more challenging child is in school. And I would also... Right. Let me, let me clarify what you're saying there. Right. We had talked about this that, yeah, there were times we would take, pick up some of our kids from school and do something with them while the kids who would not enjoy that and who had higher needs were still in school. And that gave us the ability to just do it in a simple way 
And it, that worked really well. I'm glad you remembered that from our conversation, Melissa. Yeah. And, you know, do the things like you were saying, Lisa, like that fill you up. And so, you know, it may seem terrible and very not connected to go to a family outing without your hard child. But just think about like how refreshed you could feel after that and how much more available you can be to that child when you all reconnect than if you, you know, in the name of connection, drag a kid who doesn't even want to do the thing, who doesn't value it and is going to make it miserable for everyone. And then how you feel towards that kid for the rest of the day or for the rest of your life, because they ruined, you know, the 10th annual, whatever. Um, So I think we just have to have a bigger picture in mind. Also remember that we can't control how our kids perceive what's going on. And some of our kids feel different or left out all the time. And we don't obviously want to, you know, do things, you know, and make them feel that way necessarily. But again, looking at the big picture, what does everyone need? Your other children, if they're going to think that, anyway, whether you bring them or you don't bring them, then, you know, take the break and they might need the break too. So, yeah, you know, this is such a question. I mean, it, it actually reaches into my heart. It's bringing up a lot of emotion for me and a lot of sadness, but I think we have to talk about this because it is so common. So if you are listening to this and you are feeling that weight in your heart or maybe some permission and freedom to do things differently, we get it. We, we really understand this because we have wrestled through it ourselves. If you would like to submit a question for a future episode, send an email to us at email at theadoptionconnection.com or even better, more fun for us, you can leave a message at 208 208- Seven four one three eight eight zero, and that's just a, a line where you can leave a message. Nobody answers it. It doesn't ring anywhere, but we get to hear your voice and um, feel like we know you and understand you a little bit more with your question. If you need more personalized help, we offer private coaching. For more information, head to theadoptionconnection.com/services. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram as The Adoption Connection. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a quick review over on iTunes. It will help us reach more moms who may be feeling alone. And remember, until next week, you're a good mom doing good work, and we're here for you. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.